0: You are listening to Excess Advantage, a podcast dedicated to the Genesis RPG by Fantasy Flight Games. The Excess Advantage podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at excess-advantage.com. And now your host, Christopher. Hello, and welcome to Excess Advantage, episode 13. Social encounters. Today's episode is going to be all about chapter seven, founding a core rulebook, starting on page 118. But before we get into the episode proper, I do have two bits of housekeeping that I need to take care of. First one is that we have a new iTunes review. This is a five star review by Madame Beltane from the UK. You guys might remember hearing uh, this voice on my last episode when we were discussing homebrew. So this is Adam leaving a review. And Adam says, the podcast breaks down the excellent Genesis system into easily digestible bite-sized chunks. As well as rules, discussions, and examples, there's also a chance to see them in play with the live play episodes. A great resource for those interested in the system or wanting to gain a better handle on things. Thank you very much for the kind words, Adam. But unfortunately, the uh, second bit of housekeeping is that the live play episodes are not going to continue. I'm sure you guys have noticed over the past few episodes that there are some audio quality issues and unfortunately that's mostly my fault because when I had originally decided to do the game I'm like hey Genesis is a new game let's get together and I'll play it and I like to record my online sessions so I can go back and listen to them, see what I did well, see what I did poorly, what I can improve on and all that. And I'm like, I've got a podcast now. I should put this up as a live play. People love live plays. Well, since we were not expecting to do a podcast recording, we were not all properly equipped or prepared for that. I myself wasn't even using my podcasting microphone. I was just using the microphone that came with the Headphones that I got with my iPad. So, you know, it works great for just people sitting around, hanging out, playing a game. But when you're trying to do something professional like this, the audio quality just isn't there. So, unfortunately, I have decided to pull the plug on the live play series. So, y'all are not going to hear any more of that. And for that, I apologize, but I just cannot in good conscience let it continue because of all the audio issues we've been having. And speaking of audio issues, I know that even the last episode there were a few weird glitches and hangups, but I think I have that sorted out, so today's episode should be a heck of a lot better. And speaking of today's episode, let's go ahead and get right into it. And like I said earlier, today's episode is about social encounters, which I'm going to get up on my soapbox for a few moments here, because I think that the social encounter mechanics are the most underutilized mechanics in any RPG, not just Genesis, because we, we all have no problem suspending disbelief and pretending that our character Mighty McFooze a lot can swing a giant two-handed double-headed battle axe and cleave goblins in twain without the players necessarily needing any skill whatsoever in melee combat. We have no problem with our character Shooting McBullseye being able to um, fire a gun at you know a target at a kilometer range without having the player needing to know the first thing about firearms. But as soon as it gets to the social aspects, then all of a sudden it's the player's skill and ability that comes into play and the character's stats are ignored. I think that's Loaded Bull, and it's really... Uh, shortchanging a lot of players on the types of characters that they can play because I'm not necessarily super strong but I can definitely play a barbarian I can play an orc no problem because guess what the strength of the character you know no pun intended is mechanical and I just roll better dice when doing strength related things as opposed to doing say smarts related things But whenever I make a face character who is more eloquent with words than I am, the GMs don't give a crap. It doesn't matter what my skills say. They just listen to what I say as a player and then just move on with it that way. And that's, like I said, it's loadable. That's not the way things should be done. Um, And so I think the social encounter rules in Genesis are a very nice compromise between the two. And so let's just go ahead and dive into uh, what these are and how they work. And sorry for that soapbox moment, but it's just something I had to say. So social encounters are, I think, one of the biggest problems people have is not necessarily knowing when you are in a social encounter and when you're just role playing between two characters, whether it's two player characters or a player character and a non-player character. And in the unfortunate event where a GM has to talk to themselves, you have two NPCs in dialogue. But for me, I just describe what the conversation is about. I won't actually talk to myself because that's boring both for me and for most players. The very first section here on page 118 says that uh, for our purposes, a social encounter is an encounter that primarily focuses on your party of player characters, engaging with non-player characters in discourse or dialogue. So anytime the PCs are chatting with an NPC, it's technically a social encounter, which, you know, sometimes you you know when it's a social encounter. You know, you are trying to fast talk or bribe a guard, you are trying to um negotiate a peace treaty, you are trying to get a better deal on a weapon at the weapon shop, those kind of things. Because you're expecting you are expecting to roll dice, which means that you are thinking it's an encounter. Even if it's just a one roll and done, it's still an encounter. But a lot of other things that are not as in-depth or nuanced, people just kind of tend to gloss over. Now that we know, even those things are considered social encounters. And one of the biggest differences between social encounters and combat encounters is that whereas combat encounters take place in structured gameplay, you roll initiative, you take turns in initiative order, you perform one action, one or more maneuvers, and you know you keep cycling through the initiative that way, and each round is a minute or slightly more or slightly less, depending on how you want to how the GM rules it. But social encounters take place during uh, narrative gameplay and not structured gameplay. So it's not broken down into rounds. You're not limited to a set number of actions and maneuvers. You just describe what's happening, you talk things out, and you move on from there whenever it's you know appropriate to change the focus of the camera from one uh, set of characters to another as one things move on. So therefore, they are a lot more flexible than combat encounters because you don't have to concentrate on keeping the beat. You don't have to do, okay, this person goes, this person goes, this person goes. Okay, this conversation is happening. Let that play out and then move on to this conversation. Let that play out and then move on slightly similar, but it's less constrained because you don't have that back and forth of initiative order. And then, of course, all combat encounters are encounters, so the question then becomes when are these encounters over? And there's a short three-bullet-point list at the bottom of page 118 that says um, a good suggestion as to when a social encounter is over is when the party leaves a location, because traveling always provides a good pause in the narrative. When narrative time skips ahead or behind, you know, those three hours later or eight hours prior or whatever, you have the social encounter and then time jumps one direction or other. Obviously, the encounter is over. It might jump directly into a new encounter, but that encounter is over. And the third bullet point is when the group finishes interacting with an individual or group of individuals. So once the... Um, gun bunny finishes negotiating the price of their new toy with the, with the weapon shop keep, that social encounter is over. Even if the rest of the characters are still there in in the weapon shop looking for things or what have you, or if they're in a market, that social encounter is over. And it's important to know when social encounters begin and end, because characters might have specific abilities that once per encounter do this, once per encounter do that, or... Um, Another important thing is that at the end of every encounter, you get to make that uh, skill check to recover strain. Strain recovery is not limited just to the end of combat encounters. It's at the end of any encounter. So at the end of every social encounter as well, you get to make that discipline or cool check to recover strain. Because otherwise, um, as we'll see later, social encounters, the main quote-unquote currency is your strain. So your skill checks are dealing causing strain to your enemies. I'm using air quotes here, but so as you succeed at skill checks, you inflict strain on those you're interacting with, they skill check against you, they inflict strain on you, so at the end of the encounter, you get to roll uh, to recover strain. Now, there are a few things when um, going through the social encounters that specifically the GM needs to keep in mind. The first thing is, what is the goal of this encounter? A lot of times, it's pretty obvious. The fighter wants a better deal on their armor, so they're going to try to negotiate and haggle down. The um, silver-tongued trickster is trying to convince somebody to purchase something from them that they don't actually need, you know, snake oil salesman. Those types of things are the goal of the encounter. And so you need to keep that in mind when you are running an encounter, because once the goal has been met or... It has gotten to a point where the goal cannot be met. That's when your encounter ends and you move on. The next section talks about setting a start and end. And obviously the start is easy. When everybody starts talking, social encounter starts. The end of the encounter is when either the, the, the PCs have accomplished their goal or failed so thoroughly that accomplishing the goal is no longer possible. And we'll get to uh, talking about when that is in a little bit um, when we talked about actually using structured social encounters. But um, the next section is as a GM, you have to be sure to manage time and ability use. Um, before I mentioned some abilities that can be used once per encounter. You know, you have to make sure that characters are not using those more than once because each encounter you can use it once per encounter. But there are some abilities that require just the expenditure of an action or a maneuver to perform and the turn structure is not as rigid as in uh, as in structured gameplay. So as a GM, you have to make sure that whenever a an ability is used, it's not overused. And the easiest way to do that is to use um, narrative rounds in social encounters, which you're not going to roll initiative, you're not going to you know, keep track of very specific things. You're not going to spend maneuvers to move from one place to another because narrative rounds are a lot more wishy-washy and flowy and freeform. The only um, really restriction is you can only use an ability that requires an action once and you can use an ability that requires a maneuver once during your social encounter turn. And then once you do that, then the focus moves on to the next character. And you can go around the table. You can um, write a list and just go down the list. You could determine based on the actions of what just happened, where to go next. As long as every character in the encounter gets a chance to take a turn, that's all that matters. Because um, you want to make sure that everyone has the chance to do their thing. And even if you come up to the... Um, the character who has no social skills, who has a presence of one, who is just there to you know, look intimidating and beat things up, you still go to them and see what they do. And it's perfectly fine to just say, I stand here looking menacing or something like that. You know, So you, you can just, as long as you give them the option, they don't have to perform an action because sometimes it might not be in your best interest to try to do something. And we'll get to that in just a little bit. But usually when making skill checks, you are making an opposed check. Unlike in combat, where difficulty is purely based on the range to your target and only certain abilities upgrade the uh, difficulty of the check. So all checks in social encounters are opposed. And on page 55, there's a nice little table that tells you what um, the difficulty is based off of. So brief uh, recap, coercion and leadership are opposed with discipline. Deception is opposed with vigilance. Charm is opposed with cool. And negotiate is opposed with negotiation. I'm sorry, negotiation is opposed with negotiation. So if you're trying to charm the socks off someone, you are rolling your charm skill, and you're building your uh, negative dice based on their cool skill. Now, with that being said, If you are making a skill check against a group of people, then it's probably not going to be a post-check. They actually do have a nice little table here on page 120. Um, For size of group, You know, 2 to 5 is average, 6 to 15 hard, 16 to 50 daunting, 51 or more is formidable. Um, That's just kind of a ballpark estimate. You can always throw in setback dice for a rather unruly crowd, throw in boost dice if they are already hanging on your every word, You know, you can spend story points to upgrade, or if there's like some rabble rouser in the crowd, that might warrant an automatic upgrade without having to spend a story point, those kinds of things, but it's a good starting point. And since you are making skill checks, you're going to generate advantage, triumph, threat, and despair. And so page 121, they have a few tables, and by a few, I mean two, one for uh, positive symbols, one for negative symbols on things you can do. You're going to see a lot of things um, coming back, like recovering or suffering strain, um, passing out, boost dice, setback dice, upgrading difficulties, upgrading ability checks, that kind of thing. But they also have a lot of social specific things. For example, for two advantage, you can learn the strength or flaw of the target character. So in the course of your conversation, you mention a few things; they let slip a few things that lets you know what they're. You know, motivation is. And then for learning desire or fear, it's three advantage or obviously a triumph. And then with uh, threat, if you roll, say, three threat, you accidentally reveal your own desire or fear in the course of the conversation. You stumble on your words, you get caught in a trap, and you reveal a little something. And the reason why learning other people's motivations is important is because. If you play towards one of their motivations, you get boost dice on your check, depending on which motivation it is. But if you uh, make a suggestion that would go against their motivation, you get some setback dice. But uh, we'll get to that in just a little bit, because the next section at the bottom of 121 is what everyone's waiting for, is winning. How do you win a social encounter? The three suggestions they have are performing a mutually agreeable solution succeeding on an opposed check, or targeting the opponent's strain threshold. So with proposing a mutually agreeable solution is simply the player character proposes something, the non-player character agrees, no skill checks are made, social encounters is over, boom, done. The example they give in the book is that you agree to pay full price for an item at a store. The clerk is not going to say no to the normal price, so you're going to go ahead and get that taken care of, um, it's just kind of thrown in there as an option to move things along, but also to uh, allow players to just be like, hey, this, I'm going to do what the dude wants, he's going to do what I want, we're all good. And when there's no need for a skill check, there's no need for a skill check. The second option is succeeding on an opposed social skill check. Trying to bluff your way past a guard usually only requires one skill check. Trying to get a deal on an item is only one skill check. Uh, intimidating someone so they run away. Usually just single skill check. For minor things that, you know, you want the, as a GM you want the players to roll for, but you're not entirely certain that it's necessary to go into a long, drawn-out thing, then just go ahead and do one skill check and that determines success or failure of the encounter. But for the more in-depth, nuanced, and slightly more complicated uh, ways of winning a social encounter is targeting the opponent's strain threshold. And this just basically means when you're making a skill check, uh, you inflict strain upon them, and when they make a skill check against you, they inflict strain upon you. And then um, once an NPC exceeds half of their strain threshold, they're willing to compromise. And so once they hit that point, they will offer a concession to the player character. The player character can choose to accept it or press for more. And if they accept it, then the compromise is what happens. If they press for more, however, then um, you can move on to uh, pushing for total capitulation, which is when you cause enough strain that they exceed their strain threshold, and then you pretty much get the I surrender, whatever you want you get. You know, 100%, well, I shouldn't say 100% PC wins because some things NPCs just aren't going to do. Regardless of how compelling your argument may be. You know, going up to someone and going up to a crime boss and saying, Hey, I need your liver for a transplant because this kid's gonna die. Well, most crime bosses aren't gonna give a crap. So regardless of how much strain you cause them to suffer, they're not gonna say, Oh, okay, cut cut out my liver, because they don't want anyone cutting on them. You know, that's that's a very dangerous and compromising position for them to be in. Now, with that being said, if the task you are trying to accomplish is impossible, maybe the current social encounter could be figuring out how to get them to be amenable to your suggestion or your wants or your needs. And that is how a lot of negotiations actually go. This is what I want. Well, you can't get that. Well, what if I do something else for you first? Would that allow you to see my side of things? Oh, yeah, totally. We can blah, blah, blah. Of course, when you get to that point, the player character should have already known that it was an impossible task so they didn't get this far, but that doesn't mean that, you know, sometimes people forget or when the target capitulates, the piece is like, all right, this is actually what I've been going for the whole time. You know, they weren't clear in the beginning or they thought one thing and the GM thought another, you know, miscommunications happen. But at that point, you can be like, "Um, well, no, that's not, <laughs> that's not something that they would actually go for. But if you want to change their Outlook then you know, try X. it's It's kind of the I have a quest for you. Do this quest chain and my faction will be more inclined to listening to you and being helpful to you kind of deal. But the one downside is if you go that route, you then I say you I mean the player character might exceed their strain threshold in the course of the social encounter because maybe the NPC is more eloquent. maybe, uh, they're making a lot of good points that the pc didn't think of maybe the pc is just so underclass that they keep failing everything and they just keep taking strain whatever the case may be if a player character exceeds their strain threshold then they fail to accomplish their goal pure and simple so player characters when they exceed their strain threshold that's the end of the encounter they can no longer continue but as a player character Um, you can choose whether to compromise once your strain exceeds half. As an NPC, the rules are pretty rigid. It says uh, that PCs get more freedom of choice than NPCs. So NPCs, once they exceed half their strain threshold, then they offer a compromise, plain and simple. You know, they don't have the option of uh, not, because the player characters are the heroes or the protagonists. They're the ones who do all the cool stuff. So NPCs are just there to show how cool the PCs are. In this case, once you exceed half of the NPC strain threshold, they will offer you a concession. And it's up to the player characters whether or not to take it. A player character, however, when they exceed half of their strain threshold, they don't have to offer a concession. You can be as hard-lined as you want to and not offer a concession. However, if things are going against you rapidly, you have the options. you can be like, look, I'll give you this if you give me that and we'll call it a day so that at least you get a little something as opposed to getting nothing if your strain threshold is exceeded. Or if it's in character for you to um, offer a concession, you can totally do that. You know, look to your motivations and whatnot and use those as a guideline. And on page 123, uh, this is actually the page that I keep not being able to find every time I do a social encounter, which is using skills to inflict strain. It's pretty straightforward when you make a skill check against somebody to inflict strain on a success. It's one strain plus one strain per uncancelled success. So it's um, successes plus one strain is inflicted on your target. However, if you fail, you suffer two strain. Um, Whether that's disappointment that it didn't work, or a timely rebuttal, or what have you. Either way, um, every skill check, someone is taking strain. And I have this nice little paragraph that I just feel the need to read to you. Remember, the social skill checks your character use needs to be appropriate to the situation and their goals. Your character can't use coercion when they're trying to charm or flatter someone, for example. Also, it's never enough to just roll some dice. You always need to explain what your character is doing and why the check makes sense. It can be enough to say, my character is complimenting the target's appearance, so I'm going to make a charm check. But you do have to explain your character's actions. And I think this is super important, which goes back to my soapbox moment earlier. I like making face characters and leader type characters who have all of these uh, social skills, but I am not as eloquent. I am not as good with people as the characters I make. You know, I don't know the proper etiquettes. I don't know what words to use as a player. I'm kind of bad at it. But I can just say, hey, I'm talking really fast and confusing in order to get them to look the other way in order to let my buddies sneak in behind them. Okay, that sounds like skullduggery. You know, you're using subterfuge. So I'll make that Skullduggery check. You know, I don't have to explain what I'm saying or how fast I'm talking or what the conversation is about. I just say I'm fast talking them to confuse them and distract them. Boom. Roll the check. That kind of thing. So it's you just need to explain what your character is doing. You don't have to go into detail. If you do the GM might be inclined to throw you a boost die. Another thing, on page 123, we have this little sidebar entitled Critical Remarks in Social Encounters, which is an optional rule, but gives you the equivalent of critical injuries. If you spend one triumph or four advantage, you can inflict an additional five strain on the target. So you're not going to cause any lasting wounds, you're not going to give them a phobia or any sort of mental condition you're just going to cause more strain and it'll be more likely for them to capitulate or at least uh, attempt to compromise with you. Uh, Last section here is just talking about using motivations in social encounters. And like I mentioned briefly earlier, if you play towards someone's motivations, you get boost dice. If you play against, you get setback dice. If you work towards their strength or flaw, you get a boost die. When I say work towards... Then that means you are using that strength for your own good. So, if they're, um, or you're using that um, motivation for your own, um, yeah, for your own good. So, for example, if their strength is analytical, so they like to analyze things, they like to absorb information, they like to learn things. If you mention to them that doing this will help them learn new things, well, guess what? That's playing towards their motivation and it's using it for your benefit, so you're going to get a boost die. However, if you work against one of their strengths or flaws, then it's one setback die added to the check. You know, you're know, you trying to commit them to do something to double check their figures because they're analytical. Well, they've already done it. You know, They're not learning anything new. It's kind of repetitive and boring work, so you might get a setback die from that. If you play towards a fear or desire, however, then the effect is doubled. It's two boost dice for playing towards a a fear or desire when using it for your own benefit, and two setback dice when that fear or desire would be against um, what you're trying to get them to do. So for example, a, a fear here might be humiliation. If you say, hey, I need your help to get this information because I need it to humiliate that person, well, they're f- afraid of humiliation, so in- so participating in something that would lead to the humiliation of others would probably warrant two setback dice. Um, but if you use that to your advantage, saying, hey, help me with this, and we will bury this humiliating fact of yours, well, then you'd get two boost dice because you're using their fear for your benefit. So just remember that um, the quote-unquote, minor uh, strengths and flaws. Just give you one boost die or setback die, and the quote-unquote major fears and desires give you two of each. There is a sidebar on the top of 124 about uh, GMs determining PC motivations, and it pretty much boils down to uh, minions do not have motivations. They do not last long enough. They do not matter enough for you to put any effort into getting their motivations. Minor characters that are encountered once, maybe twice, should have strength and flaw only because you're not going to spend enough time interacting with them to really get to the desires and fears, so don't worry about it. Of course, if you create a minor character who then keeps returning, there's nothing stopping you from upgrading them and giving them all four motivations instead of just the two. Another important thing to keep in mind is if the motivations are never discovered, then it's just like they don't exist. Be sure to play them up. Be sure to use your symbols to, as a GM, uh, reveal your motivations on a lot of threat. Or, you know, if a PC rolls well enough, like, hey, you know, you got to advantage, I'll totally tell you what their strength is for that. You know, so encouraging um, discovery of motivations is important. And lastly, there is a way to determine other characters' motivations besides um, lucking into them by spending advantage and threat is if you want your character to study the target to try to discern one of their motivations, make an opposed perception versus cool check. If you succeed, then your GM can let your character know one of the target's motivations. So the GM lets you know one of them, depending on um, the situation, probably depend on what how they're acting and which motivation is revealed. But one thing to keep in mind is that doing this, you're actually paying attention and scrutinizing the person. So it's not going to go unnoticed. Which, if you flip back a page or two to the table of spending advantage and threat, you know one advantage is you notice a single important point in the ongoing encounter, such as an overcurious waiter or some drapes your characters could stand behind to avoid being recognized. So, if you are um, watching someone, one single advantage can be spent for someone to recognize that you're, you know, you're being overly observant about a particular target. And because it does take a little bit of time to do that, it is suggested that um, GM should only let characters attempt this once or twice per encounter and only once per target. And that is the six pages of social encounters in a nutshell. Because it's only six pages, I would highly recommend you go back and, or you go in and read it yourself because there's a lot of uh, good tidbits in there that I did not get to. It's not all that difficult to use social encounters. It's the same mechanics you're always used to, except instead of causing wounds, you're inflicting strain. Three different ways of taking care of social encounters. Just let it fly, or make one skill check, or go all in and start inflicting strain on each other, depending on the importance of it. And just remember that regardless of how your players play, it's all about the character skill. So GMs out there, let the face character roll those skills to show how awesome they are at face character things. Fellow players, if one of your fellow players out there actually makes a face character, don't just talk over them, let them be the face character, and uh, that is going to be a wrap. So remember, regardless of the result of your skill roll, always check for excess advantage. You've been listening to Excess Advantage. If you'd like to leave comments on today's show or subscribe to the community, please visit the website at excess-advantage.com. You can find the host on Twitter at C double underscore If you like what you hear and want to spread the word, please leave a review or rating on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you subscribe. It'll help others find us. If you want to join the growing Discord community, become a patron over at patreon.com forward slash accessadvantage. Thanks for listening and catch you next week.